As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Although in this particular study guide, you might hear me emoting more than I ever have in my entire life because we are going to be covering my two absolute faves from history and the reason that I'm in graduate school right now, William and Mary. As a result of that, this particular episode is probably going to be pretty long. I'm going to do my best to keep it under an hour, which means I won't be able to go into excruciating detail about every little thing, and I will have to stay tragically surface level on some aspects of William and Mary's life, like the Glorious Revolution and like William's campaigns against the French, which really could be their own series in and of itself. But hey, I'm going to do my best. I can't be tamed. In history class, if these two crazy kids came up at all, it was probably because of a little something called the Glorious Revolution and some cool documents that resulted, like the English Bill of Rights. They may not be the most well-known English monarchs, but William and Mary's story includes daughters betraying fathers, a marriage that's pretty stable despite some bisexual affairs, a flood, and goldfish. Let's begin. I'm going to start by talking about William. It's not because he's a man and he's better or any patriarchal nonsense like that. I'm starting with William because he's born first and from a chronological perspective it makes more sense. The future William III of Orange and England, it's so nice when the numbers work out like that, is born November 4th, 1650, in the Hague, Netherlands. As a note, I'm going to be using the Netherlands and the Dutch Republic pretty interchangeably in this episode. Yes, there are some subtle differences between the two entities, but for my purposes, they're the same. William is the son of William II of Orange, the stadtholder, aka leader of the, of the Dutch Republic, and Mary, the daughter of Charles I of England. This means that he is going to be the nephew of both Charles II of England and James II of England, which means that his wife, Mary Stuart of England, is his cousin since Mary is James's daughter. The family tree is really beautiful. William's childhood is not easy. First, his father dies of smallpox eight days before William is born. Then we have the fact that the Dutch Republic is in the middle of some drama over how much power the stadtholder and the Orange family in general should have. Due to his father's death, William is mostly going to be raised by his mother, Mary, and his paternal grandmother, Amalia. Mary and Amalia have a really tricky relationship and are going to constantly be fighting over who has precedence in the Dutch court and who's really going to raise William. Amalia ends up winning this power struggle, which really shouldn't be that surprising given that Mary had made it very clear that she absolutely hates the Netherlands. Mary ends up spending most of William's childhood hanging out in France with her brothers who are currently in exile because England is under the control of Oliver Cromwell. When William is only a year old, the politics in the Republic also start to turn against him. Various provinces within the Republic start to say that maybe little baby William shouldn't automatically be the stadtholder just because his father was. As a result, we see a shift in power away from the stadtholder to regents, who tend to be wealthy city merchants. The next year, the Dutch Republic goes to war with England in the First Anglo-Dutch War. This war doesn't go great for the Republic. The Dutch public starts to turn against the various regents and start supporting the idea that maybe William should be the stadtholder because it's tradition and he'd probably do better than the regents even though he is a literal toddler at the time. However, this shift in power doesn't happen thanks to the rise of the DeWitt brothers. 
The DeWitt brothers are very Republican. They want a weak Stadtholder, and they really want to keep the position of Stadtholder out of reach of the House of Orange. That's really all we need to know about the DeWitt brothers. As always, I could do an entire study guide on them, but trying to keep the study guide short. The DeWitt brothers are willing to do whatever they can to block William from getting power, even if that means working with some of the Republic's traditional enemies, like France or England. When William is eight, he leaves his home in The Hague to get educated at Leiden University. William gets a pretty great education and mostly focuses on history and military tactics, and he does fairly well. For most of his life, William is going to be famous as a master tactician. However, it's during his time at Leiden that William starts showing the signs of bad health that will plague him for the rest of his life. He develops asthma and a basically perpetual cough by the time he's 10. Also when he's 10, Louis XIV of France takes over William's namesake city of Orange. Yes, Orange is technically in France, even though the Dutch ruling family is named after it. Don't overthink it. Louis claims that he's taken over Orange to set up a protectorate for William and to keep it safe for William once William isn't once William is an adult. But Louis' overstepping starts the tension between the two, which will last for both of their lifetimes. That same year, Charles II is restored to the throne of England. William's mother marries like, cool, sick, my brother's king of England, I'm going to go visit him. While Mary is in England, she dies of smallpox. Suddenly, William doesn't really have a guardian. His paternal grandmother, Amalia, is dead by now, so there is some question of who's going to raise the now adolescent William. However, before Mary had left for England, she made William a ward of the state for the province of Holland. And Holland's like, oh, this is super cool. And it's not just Holland who's happy that William is now their ward. Because William is Holland's ward, it means that at least one of the Dutch provinces has an interest in promoting William and making her sure that he succeeds in gaining power. As a result, he becomes super popular in Holland, which starts making the DeWitt brothers more and more uncomfortable. In 1665, when William is 15, England and the Netherlands go to war yet again win the Second Anglo-Dutch War. The people of Holland start pushing to have William either lead a section of the army or have him lead a delegation to England to negotiate peace. They love William. They want him to have a chance to shine. However, the DeWitt brothers keep those attempts from going anywhere, and the war ends up being a wash for both sides. The Dutch Republic loses most of their colonial holdings in North America, aka New Amsterdam, aka New York, but we do have a huge Dutch naval victory under Admiral de Ruyter when he performs the raid on the Medway and destroys a huge chunk of the English fleet, and the Dutch get to control some key trade routes in the East Indies. After the end of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, William is pretty close to being an adult. Once he turns 18, he is legally recognized as an adult, and he starts to consolidate power within Holland. He starts running his own household and making it pretty clear that he's going to do what he wants, which really freaks out the DeWitt brothers and other Republicans within the Dutch Republic. William takes a small little break from consolidating power in 1670 and visits England for the first time. However, this visit doesn't go great. Right before he arrives in England, Charles II secretly signs the Treaty of Dover with Louis XIV, which means that England and France are now allies against the Dutch. Also, as it turns out, William isn't really a huge fan of the English court. He thinks it's too decadent and too corrupt. Charles tries to get him to play a bed trick on some ladies-in-waiting, and William's like, 
nah, dude, no thanks. And Charles is like, oh my god, my nephew is the biggest buzzkill. I hate him. Even though William is kind of awkward at court, overall, the English people don't mind him. They're like, sure, he's awkward, but at least he's a good Anglican, unlike other people at court. William ends up going home to the Netherlands, and that's a really good thing, because we're getting to 1672, aka the disaster year, aka the year that the Third Anglo-Dutch War and the Franco-Dutch War start. The De Witt brothers, who are in charge of the Dutch Republic, do not handle the outbreak of these two wars well at all. Basically, the DeWitt brothers aren't prepared for the war, they're convinced it's not going to happen, and the French army is able to invade the Dutch Republic and conquer provinces really, really quickly. According to some anti-according to some anti-DeWitt pamphlets and pro-Orange pamphlets, the DeWitt brothers were secretly being paid off by Louis to not prepare for this war, but I'm gonna take that with a massive grain of salt. Either way, by 16, by the summer of 1672, most of the Dutch Republic is invaded by the French, and the Dutch people freak out. We see a ton of riots, the DeWitt brothers are overthrown, and later assassinated slash murdered. In the process of their death, there may have been some light cannibalism, but that's really a story for another time. By July 1672, William, who is 21 years old, is named Stadtholder, aka leader of the Republic, as well as the general of the Dutch army. He isn't even old enough to be a modern-day college senior, and he's in charge. As soon as he's named king, both France and England try to negotiate with William to end the dual wars. However, both of the treaties are a huge insult to William and would have stripped the Netherlands of most of its territory and basically gotten rid of Dutch independence. William tries to get around these treaties. He knows that Charles II is the weaker of the two major powers, and he tries to convince Charles to break off the alliance with Louis, but for once in his life, Charles is faithful and that attempt goes nowhere. Realizing that his options are quickly running out, William is like, fuck it. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and fight for my country's survival. So this is what William does. And it's really quite epic and deserves, at the very least, a six-episode miniseries. He pulls all of his troops into Holland and then starts opening the Dutch waterline, aka the series of dikes and other fortifications that keeps the Netherlands from flooding since most of the Netherlands is below sea level. Luckily for William, over the last few months, it had been raining like crazy. So once he opens the waterline, we get a huge chunk of land flooded. Once this land is flooded, it's really, really hard for the French to fight effectively. Meanwhile, the Dutch are pretty good at doing stuff via water. So William is able to push the French forces out of Holland. After this first win, other countries are like, oh hey, this William guy isn't half bad. Maybe we should ally with him. William manages to sign a loose peace treaty with both Spain and the Austrian Habsburgs against Louis, and he also manages to sign a treaty with one of France's ancient enemies, the Duke of Lorraine, as well as some treaties with countries like Denmark. He also continues to keep pushing against the French, and by the end of 1673, the French army is almost entirely out of the Dutch Republic. By the age of 23, William has made himself the leader of both Protestant and anti-French forces in Europe. He's really the first guy to go head-to-head -head against Louis XIV and win. The next year, in 1674, he signs a peace treaty with England. And part of this peace treaty creates the groundwork for his later marriage to Mary Stuart, James's daughter and Charles II's niece. So things are going pretty 
good for William. Except in 1675, he does almost die of smallpox. But come on, who doesn't almost die of smallpox in 1675? The only thing that keeps him from dying is his BFF, William Betnick, who'd known him since childhood, who crawls into bed with William and cuddles with him to sweat out the fever. And it works. William survives, which is a good lesson to us all about why cuddling is so important. Once William is alive, he turns his attention to solidifying that marriage negotiation with Charles II. He does have some other possible brides, including a princess of Poland. Louis XIV tries to marry one of his illegitimate daughters to William, and William's like, fuck no, princes of Orange don't marry bastards. By 1677, it's pretty clear William is going to marry Mary Stuart. And I think now is a great time to introduce our other protagonist of this study guide, Mary Stuart. The future Mary II of England is born Mary Stuart on April 30th, 1662, in St. James Palace in London, England. She is the oldest surviving child of James II of England and his first wife, Anne Hyde. Her parents have an amazingly unhappy marriage. James feels like Anne had forced him to marry her because at the time of their marriage, Anne was extremely pregnant, which was causing quite a scandal, and Anne was not of royal or noble birth, which meant James couldn't have a more politically advantageous marriage, and Anne was super annoyed at James for having all sorts of affairs with unattractive women. Anne ends up dying of cancer when Mary is 12. Her mother's death is extremely traumatic for Mary, and as a result, and as a result, she's going to become really obsessed with death and terrified with the idea of becoming fat because Anne Hyde had put on a ton of weight right before dying due to her cancer. Once her mother is dead, Mary is not raised directly by her father because by this point, James is pretty openly a Catholic and an heir to the throne of England cannot be raised by a Catholic. Instead, Mary and her younger sister Anne are basically raised by the super Protestant noble Villiers family. The Villiers family does a great job of teaching Mary to be a good Anglican who loves the Church of England and to be a good future housewife of England. And Mary becomes a great dancer, she learns to love the theater, etc, etc. But she has a pretty substandard education for someone who is second in line to the throne of England behind only her father. For example, Mary never learns how to read or write Greek or Latin, and her spelling is going to be pretty atrocious. In her teens, Mary has a very, very intense relationship with an older lady-in-waiting who's living with the Villiers family, Frances Apsley. Mary writes Frances Apsley a ton of letters, and in these letters, she calls herself Frances's wife and calls Frances her husband. The whole wife and husband thing does cool after they both get married to other men, but Mary is going to keep up this correspondence with Frances for the rest of their lives. She's also super jealous of anyone who tries to become friends with Frances Apsley, including her little sister, Anne. And Frances Apsley isn't the only woman who Mary has an intense relationship with during her teens. She also has a very close friendship with Villiers' daughter, Barbara, which causes her father, James the Duke of York, to raise a few eyebrows. It's unclear if these friendships went beyond platonic because it wasn't uncommon in this time period for friends to kiss each other and be like, oh, I love you. But I do think the fact that she was referring to one of her close friends as her husband definitely suggests that it was more than just a traditional friendship. When Mary is 11, her father remarries and suddenly Mary has a new stepmother. Her new stepmother, Mary of Modena, is only four years older than her and is aggressively Catholic. Despite her stepmother's Catholicism, Mary and Mary of Modena do get along pretty well. 
they agree to disagree about the whole religion issue. Obviously, the two will fall out later on, but we're nowhere near that. Around the time that James marries Mary of Modena, we start getting whispers of the fact that Mary might get engaged to William of Orange. Obviously, Mary has no idea about this. She's busy getting educated on how to be a lady, living with the villiers, seeing plays, having a great time. She probably barely even knows who William is. She may have met him during William's visit to England in 1670, but given that she was raised separately from the English court and she was only eight at the time, she also might not have. However, in 1677, William comes back to England and officially asks for Mary's hand in marriage. It doesn't go well. James, the Duke of York, is like, absolutely not. I'm not going to let my daughter marry this Dutch guy who's the Protestant protector. That can make me look like a shitty Catholic. James literally has to be forced into accepting the marriage by Charles II. And when Mary finds out about the engagement, she's not thrilled. She literally cries for a day. She's only 15. William is almost 27. And Mary has the reputation for being fun and charming and lively. She's tall. She has lots of dark hair. She's super hot. Whereas William is shorter than she is, and he's kind of awkward. He doesn't let you talk that much because of his Dutch accent, and he keeps coughing all the time because all the rooms in the English castles are super smoky because of candles, and it keeps setting off his asthma. But the two end up getting married. On November 4th, 1677, aka William's 27th birthday, the wedding ceremony is aggressively awkward because Mary's crying, William's coughing, and Charles is trying to ease the tension by cracking bad jokes. So let's quickly review how we got to the marriage of William and Mary. Both William and Mary have vaguely unhappy childhoods in their own way. William's father dies before he's even born, which leads to a bit of a power struggle in the Dutch Republic and means that William is an automatically stadtholder. When William is a teenager, we see several wars between the English and the Dutch, which go fine for the Dutch. Once William is in his late teens, he starts trying to consolidate power against the DeWitt brothers. He's ultimately successful thanks to the disaster year of 1672 when France invades almost all of the Dutch Republic, causing the Dutch people to turn on and murder the DeWitt brothers. William manages to lead the Dutch army to victory via some well-planned flooding and becomes well-known for his military strategy, and gets the reputation for being the Protestant protector of Europe. He's old enough to need a wife. He looks around. The obvious choice of spouse is his cousin, James the Duke of York's daughter, Mary Stuart of England. Meanwhile, Mary of England is raised apart from her parents because they're both Catholic and the heir to the throne of England can't be raised by Catholics. Her mother dies when Mary is young and her father ends up remarrying to a Catholic, which causes some stress in the relation. Mary doesn't get a great education, but she learns how to have some really intense intimate relationships with her ladies-in-waiting. She ends up getting betrothed to her cousin William when she's 15 and the relationship doesn't start out great for either of them. So, let's see how their marriage is going to go. Spoiler alert, not too bad. Even though the wedding night itself was pretty abysmal, things start to look up decently quickly. The next day, William has his BFF Bentwick deliver some jewels to Mary, and the most famous of these jewels are a pearl necklace and a ruby ring that she ends up loving and wears in all of her official portraits. And then William takes a giant step backwards. He is desperate to return to the Netherlands as soon as possible, 
But Mary's little sister Anne has smallpox, and Mary wants to see Anne be, and Mary wants to stay in England until Anne gets better. William's like, nope, my way or the highway. So they leave England almost immediately. On the way back to the Dutch Republic, their yachts get caught in a storm, which isn't a great sign. However, Mary impresses everyone because she is literally the only person on her yacht who doesn't panic during the storm and who doesn't get seasick. You go, Mary. And she's going to keep impressing people once she gets to the Netherlands. As it turns out, Mary completely falls in love with the Netherlands. The palaces there are clean and well-lit and airy and have hot water, unlike the cramped and, frankly, filthy palaces of Restoration England. She makes a real effort to learn Dutch, and as a result, the Dutch people love her. And she finds some things in the Netherlands that she really loves, specifically tea, porcelain, and goldfish. Mary is going to bring the concept of keeping goldfish as pets back to England with her. And slowly, the relationship between Mary and William improves. As it turns out, they have some things in common. They both love art and gardening. This will carry over to England. When they're king and queen of England, they'll work together on renovating Whitehall and making Kensington Palace a thing. Mary also develops a good working relationship with William's BFF, Bentwick, and even helps arrange Bentwick's marriage. The one big sticking point in William and Mary's relationship is religion. Mary is an Anglican, and William is a member of the Dutch Reformed Church, which is pretty Calvinist, so they do argue over some of the finer points, and William keeps getting annoyed at Mary for gambling on Sunday, but despite that, they have a friendly relationship. It's good enough that in February 1678, when William has to go back to the army, Mary is pregnant. She decides she's going to surprise William and go visit him. Tragically, on this visit, she miscarries and most likely develops some sort of infection which left her infertile. All of her subsequent pregnancies are going to end in miscarriage, which is really devastating to Mary because she did genuinely want children and not just because it would make the whole succession issue in England easier. On top of it, William probably isn't faithful to Mary. There are a lot of debates over William's sexuality, ranging from that he was entirely straight to he was entirely gay. I think he was probably in the middle. It's pretty, like, strongly sourced that he had relationships with both men and women. And one of the women he had a really intense relationship with was one of Mary's ladies-in-waiting, Elizabeth Villiers, who's a member of the Villiers family who had helped raise Mary. Elizabeth Villier isn't extremely pretty, but she's incredibly smart and may have even served as a diplomatic agent for William, which is pretty sweet and also deserves its own miniseries. William and Elizabeth are very discreet. The two probably start their relationship sometime around 1679, but Mary doesn't catch them until 1685 when she catches William leaving Elizabeth's room late at night and is absolutely furious and has a small emotional breakdown. However, the two do reconcile and this settles down really quickly. But Amelia, you're probably asking, what about the politics and stuff? They were rulers of the Dutch Republic. What's going on in the Dutch Republic? Honestly, I'm going to be skimming over this bit because not a lot is going on in the Dutch Republic. It's really stable. Most of the things that William and Mary are dealing with at this point in time are foreign affairs. William's still having to stress out about Louis XIV, who exists, and both of them are getting pulled into England's political drama. Mary and William are very high up in the line of succession. Once Charles dies, the throne goes to James, and then Mary, and then Mary's sister Anne, and then William. William and Mary are respectively fourth and second in line to the throne, 
like it or not, they have to know what's going on in England. They slowly begin getting closer and closer to certain Whig MPs who aren't exactly thrilled with the whole concept of James becoming King of England, including one Henry Sidney, who's going to be very important later on. However, on the surface, both William and Mary are acting like everything's totally fine and normal. They're very publicly friendly to Charles and James. But then in 1683, the Rye House plot, which is an attempt on Charles II's life, happens. Charles II's favorite illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth, is implicated and has to leave England. Monmouth goes to the Dutch Republic and stays with William and Mary, who are both openly extremely friendly to Monmouth. Clearly, this makes Charles extremely upset, but William and Mary don't care. They're making it publicly clear that they're going to do their own thing. In 1685, Charles dies, and James becomes King James II. With James as king, Mary is now next in line to the throne, which means that she should get all these honors and jewels and money. However, she doesn't get any of it, which is a real slap in the face by her dad. And the tensions between Mary and James keep heating up. James starts sending Mary all these letters being like, you know, you should convert to Catholicism like I did. And Mary's like, no, I'm not. And if push comes to shove, I'm going to support my husband, who's a Protestant, over you. Almost immediately after James becomes king, the Duke of Monmouth tries to overthrow him via an invasion. It goes hideously wrong. While William and Mary didn't lend any direct support to Monmouth's failed uprising, it did launch from the Dutch Republic, which makes James think they're involved and causes even more tension. On top of it, now that Monmouth is out of the picture since he's dead, the main focus of resistance to James is automatically going to go to William, and by extension, Mary, because William is now sort of the main male Protestant guy close to England who could stand against James. Starting around 1685-1686, Mary becomes much more vocal about her possible role in England towards her father. She starts criticizing him in letters for being against the Church of England, and by 1687 or so, the relationship between Mary and her dad is pretty much falling apart. But it's not just his relationship with Mary that's falling apart for James. By 1688, basically everything in England is falling apart. I'm going to take a pause while you re-listen to the James II study guide to remember why that's happening. Okay, fine. Maybe you couldn't listen to an hour-long podcast. So as a quick recap of why everyone hates James, it's because James is publicly Catholic and is trying in various bribe-adjacent ways to make England more Catholic. He's ignoring English laws like the Test Acts and appointing Catholics to positions of political power, which is really unpopular. By the spring of 1688, he releases the Declaration of Indulgences, which would grant full rights to Catholics and other religious groups, and he's trying to force Anglican priests to read aloud the Declaration every week in a real slap in the face. To make matters even worse, his second wife, the Catholic Mary of Modena, is pregnant, and unlike her previous pregnancies, this one seems to be healthy and isn't ending in miscarriage. As a result of all of this, by the start of 1688, over 2,000 English troops deserted from England to the Dutch Republic over James's various unpopular policies. All of this comes to a head when Mary of Modena gives birth to a healthy baby boy in June 1688. Through Anne, Mary starts hearing all sorts of rumors that maybe the baby isn't James because Mary of Modena was having an affair, or the real baby died and was smuggled in to the bedroom via like a chamber pot or a warming pan. It's unclear if Mary believes them, but we see the groundwork for a claim that maybe this baby isn't legitimate after all. 
And then at the end of June, seven leading English nobles and members of the English political class reach out to William in a letter. These seven are known as the Immortal Seven, and I'm going to quickly run through them and a little bit about their backgrounds because it makes it really clear how much support William had from a wide variety of backgrounds. There's Henry Sidney, William and Mary's old parliamentary friend. There's the Earl of Shrewsbury, a former Catholic who is now an Anglican. There's the Earl of Devonshire, a leading Whig. There's the Earl of Danby, Charles II's old advisor who really supports royal power, but who has massively fallen out with James. There's Viscount Lumley, a key army leader who also had been Catholic but then converted to Anglicanism. There's Edward Russell, who is a leader of the Navy. And lastly, we have Henry Compton, the Bishop of London. In my opinion, the Immortal Seven make it clear that William and Mary have support from the nobles, the church, and the army, if they so choose to get involved. In the letter, the Immortal Seven say, look, we just want William and Mary, if she wants, to come over to England and make James have free elections for Parliament in order to ensure that he doesn't erode rights any further. That's all. We're not offering you the throne. We're not telling you to overthrow James. We just want you to come over and enforce the rules. William and Mary are very torn if they should go over and intervene in England. William has foreign issues to consider. He's dealing with France as always. He doesn't want France to attack him for dealing this. He's also afraid that other countries might be like, what are you doing? You can't intervene with England attack time. But then both Spain and the Pope promise William that they won't get involved as long as William doesn't like physically murder any Catholics. So William's like, yeah, maybe I should go over and get involved. Mary's issues over the whole thing are much more emotional. She doesn't want to go against her father because that would go against all the teachings she was ever taught as a good daughter and wife, but she also wants to be a good Anglican and keep England from being Catholic again, and she wants to help her husband. Mary is genuinely torn. She does not want to replace her father, but she wants to support William, and she's just like stuck between a rock and a hard place. William ends up going to England. He leaves in November 1688, but before he leaves, he publishes his Declaration of Intentions in order to outline why he's going to England. In the Declaration of Intentions, William goes through in quite a lot of detail about all the bad things that James did as king and says, look, I'm only going to England to ensure that a new free parliament is elected. That's it. I don't want to be king at all. William ends up landing in England on November 15th, 1688. The landing's not great. It's pouring rain, welcome to England, and no one's there. It turns out everyone thought that William was going to be landing somewhere else, and very quickly people start joining up in support of William against James. Within a week, nobles start joining William's cause, as does an army leader, John Churchill, as well as Princess Anne herself. William's like, oh wow, this is that's pretty cool. I have a lot of support. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't literally like that, but whatever. And he starts marching towards London. James II sees the writing on the wall and flees. James ends up getting captured by William's forces because James is amazingly incompetent. And William is like, I don't want James to be my hostage. This will make him a rallying figure. So William lets James go free. James flees to France. And William reaches London a little over a month after he lands in England. While all this is going on, Mary is back in the Dutch Republic, freaking out 24-7 because she has no idea what's going on, if William is even alive if her husband's dead, if her dad's dead, like, what is happening until mid-December? But she's not freaking out alone. She does get to hang out with the first king and queen of Prussia, Frederick and Sophia Charlotte of Brandenburg, who are super cool and will probably be a subject of future study guides. So, James is out of the picture, but we're still not figured out. There is a lot of controversy over what to do next and who the hell is going to be monarch of England. 
Parliament is divided between three main options. The first option, which is supported by more conservative Tories, is that James will theoretically remain King of England, but he will be king in name only, and England will be ruled by a Regency Council led by Mary. The next option, which is supported by the moderate Tories, says that James abdicated by fleeing to France, so Mary, because she's next in line, is Queen of England now. And then there are the Whigs. The Whigs are like, look, James was so bad that he broke the traditional contract between king and parliament. So parliament can choose whoever they want to be the next ruler of England. We could choose Mary. We could choose William. We could choose some rando. But it's up to parliament. So parliament's really divided about what to do next. And then William walks in and he is like, hey, um... I like to be king. I'm sort of the one responsible for all of this. I don't just want to be like a regent or placeholder for my wife. That sounds super lame. And Parliament's like, no, we're not doing that. Like, we can't skip over Mary completely. She is next in line for the throne. So Parliament's torn. William has a different idea. We're at a stalemate. Ultimately, the entire situation kind of gets solved by Mary. She sends a letter to England saying, look, I'm not going to rule on my own because I'm a delicate woman who was raised by the patriarchy. I couldn't possibly upset my husband like that. If you're going to offer me the crown, you also have to give it to William. It's all or nothing. And Parliament's like, fine, we'd rather have all than nothing. And Parliament officially offers the throne to William and Mary together on February the offer of kingship slash queenship comes with some limits in a document that's known as the English Bill of Rights. It's a really cool document. You should definitely read it. It's not that long. It's very often a question on the AP Eurotest, so sneak. So um, hopeful hint from me. Huzzah! And the English Bill of Rights basically outlines the limits on the king. It says king has to give certain powers to parliament, and English citizens get certain rights and protections. William and Mary agree, and they're crowned on April, in April 1689. So, I know we just went over a ton. Let's quickly recap. William and Mary's time in the Netherlands is pretty chill. Even though their relationship starts off shaky, they bond over a mutual love of art and gardening and become very good friends, even though William does cheat on Mary and Mary can't give birth thanks to a pesky infection. The main drama in their life is England, because in 1685, Charles II dies and Mary's dad, the very Catholic James II, becomes king. James goes about alienating absolutely everyone, and it's a high point in June 1688 when James's wife Mary of Modena gives birth to a healthy baby boy, which means England could have a Catholic dynasty. Seven leading nobles and political figures reach out to William and Mary and are like, hey, can you come to England? We don't want you to take over, we just want you to help resolve some of the issues with your dad. After some thought and some promises that other foreign powers won't intervene, William agrees. He goes to England. A ton of nobles and army officers and Princess Anne herself defect away from James. James sees the writing on the wall, flees. England no longer has a ruler. There's some drama over what will happen next. Will Parliament just let the throne go to Mary? Will they make their own choice? Who will be the new king? Will William try to usurp the throne? Ultimately, Mary steps in and is like, look, if you want me to be queen, William is going to rule with me. Parliament agrees, offers them both thrones as co-rulers, and makes them sign on to the English Bill of Rights. William and Mary agree, and they get crowned in April 1689. So, let's look at their reign. The coronation of William and Mary doesn't go off perfectly. Mary is super overwhelmed by the entire being queen thing, and she still feels incredibly guilty about what's happened to her father. For the rest of her life, Mary is going to feel bad for technically deposing her dad. As a result, she's almost hysterical on the day of her coronation and has to sort of put on a fake happy face and everyone's like, oh my gosh, that bitch is so thrilled that she got rid of her dad. 
we hate her, and Mary deals with a lot of criticism for that. Even though they're both, like, on the throne and Parliament had legitimately offered the throne, there's still political drama over the fact that William and Mary are king and queen, even though James is still alive. By doing this, Parliament had ignored the idea of hereditary monarchy, which is still pretty sacred. The Church of England is going to keep defending the Stuart claim, aka James's claim to the throne, because of the divine right of monarchy, and the Archbishop of Canterbury refuses to crown William and Mary over it. So instead, Henry Compton, the Bishop of London, has to crown them instead. And the whole drama over there being a new king and queen while the old king is alive is going to continue to divide Parliament. The Tories, who, as a reminder, are very pro-monarchy, are like, look, the king cannot be deposed by people or Parliament. The only reason James left is because God intervened, obviously. The Whigs, on the other hand, who are less happy about royal power and think that Parliament should have more of a say, are like, no. The people have rights over kings, the people rightly dismiss James, and as a result, we are going to continue to see a very divided and partisan Parliament. William and Mary are also going to have to deal with some early debate over what to do with the Church of England, because there are still questions about the whole Declaration of Indulgences that James had done. The ultimate agreement is there'll be toleration for dissenting Anglican, for dissenting Protestants, but not for Catholics, Jews, or Unitarians. Dissenters can vote and can theoretically be elected, but they won't technically have full rights until 1828. William really needs this toleration agreement because he technically is a dissenting Protestant and not an Anglican, thanks to his Calvinist faith. Awkward. As rulers, Mary is always going to be the more popular of the two. She has a reputation for being good-humored and happy, whereas William is seen as serious and boring. The English people are always going to be indifferent, borderline hostile to William when Mary isn't present, which isn't great. Also not great, the fact that William and Mary suddenly have all these new limits on, on their power, thanks to Parliament. We have the English Bill of Rights, which grants things like free elections, open debate in Parliament, and the right to a trial by jury. Parliament further limits William and Mary's rights in other ways. They ban extra-legal royal action. They pass the Mutiny Act, which says that Parliament has to agree to a standing army during times of peace. This is really going to limit William because he needs that standing army for his foreign policy. There's the Civil List Act, which says that Parliament has control of royal spending. Parliament now has control over the king's ministers, and the 1694 Triennial Act says that elections must be called every three years. It's no longer enough just to call parliament. You also must have a new, fresh, freely elected parliament. As a result of all these limits and new acts, we see a shift to a more constitutional monarchy than the more traditional absolutist monarchy that the earlier Stuarts had been ruling under. Despite the limits on William and Mary, they still manage to rule, and a lot of that is because they don't have, like, goals that they need Parliament for. William's main goal as king is to bring England into his foreign policy plans against France, aka use England's money and army to fight France. William does a pretty great job of framing the war with France as a war to protect English liberty and protect Protestants in Europe, so it's not necessarily, like, unpopular. William's main focus when it comes to dealing with Parliament is just getting his money for his foreign policy, and Mary is basically going to defer governorship to William because, as we covered in her early life, she was not educated to govern in the least, and we do live in a time of patriarchy where women aren't supposed to do things. As a result, Parliament is basically going to have free reign for most of William and Mary's time on the throne, and they're really going to do their own thing. 
there's going to be one big exception to that, and that's going to be early on in the reign, when William has to secure Ireland. Basically, in 1689, James goes over to Ireland and names himself King of Ireland and starts causing all this trouble for William. William goes to Ireland to fight James, and it works. William completely destroys James's forces on the July 1st, 1690 Battle of the Boyne. James flees Ireland for France and will never attempt to make it back to the British Isles, although we are going to see continued Jacobite uprisings throughout William and Mary's reign and Anne's reign and even into some of the Hanover reigns. The Battle of the Boyne is also important because it leads to a real low point in the relationship between England and Ireland, and this low point is basically going to last three centuries. While William is in Ireland, this is basically the only time that Mary truly takes the lead on governing England. There's not a ton of information about this time period, but from all accounts, Mary does a really good job of being in charge. She's apparently really great at balancing out the various contrasting personalities on council and puts on a great public face. And this could be a key time for pro-James forces to try to overthrow William and Mary, and they don't. So clearly, Mary has something going for her. And that's what I want to eventually do my dissertation on, like Mary's political role in all of this, because I think there's more than maybe meets the eye. Anyway, they've defeated James and Ireland. Jacobite plots still exist, and some high-ranking government officials are going to get caught up in these Jacobite plots. Most infamously, John Churchill, the army leader. Churchill ends up getting imprisoned for this, which leads to a massive falling out between Mary and her little sister, Anne. Anne's lady-in-waiting and BFF is Sarah Churchill, John Churchill's wife. And Mary's like, Anne, you have to dismiss Sarah. This looks so awkward that you're still friends with her. And Anne's like, fuck no, she's my best friend. Anne's refusal to dismiss Sarah basically ruins Mary and Anne's relationship. The two don't really talk for the rest of their lives. And I'll talk a lot more about Anne and Sarah Churchill in the Anne study guide. So William has dealt with Ireland. Wales obviously isn't going to be a problem because it's Wales. Sorry to any Welsh listeners. He also has to deal with Scotland because Scotland is always an issue for the Stuarts. And what happens in Scotland isn't quite as good. We have two scandals. The Massacre of Glencoe and the Darien Scheme. Basically, in 1692, William makes all the clan leaders swear an oath of loyalty to him in an attempt to stamp out Jacobitism in Scotland. Some clan leaders don't, most notably McKeon of Glencoe. In retaliation, William orders that 40 members of the MacDonald clan are killed. The slaughter is super unpopular because in the process, the soldiers who are doing the massacring technically break the Scottish rules of hospitality, which is super, super bad. William's like, hey, don't blame me. The Scottish Privy Council planned it, but William had signed off on the order, so he is still responsible. The massacre of Glencoe is super unpopular, but it does show that William isn't massing around when it comes to putting down the Jacobites. And then we have the Darien scheme. In the, 16, in the 1690s, this guy, William Patterson, creates the Company of Scotland and tries to set up a Scottish colony in Panama. It's a super popular idea in Scotland. The Scottish want their own colony, and about a third of all liquid capital in Scotland ends up getting invested into the Company of Scotland. There are just two problems. Number one, Spain already owns Panama. And number two, the city of London wants to keep its monopoly on English slash British trade in the Americas via the East India Company. William ultimately sides with London and refuses to grant any support to the Scottish colony. So the Company of Scotland fails and makes a ton of Scottish people go bankrupt. As a result, William is even more unpopular in Scotland. Those are sort of the big 
things to know about for their joint reign. Once again, there are a lot of like sort of smaller minutiae details around domestic and foreign policy, but I think we've covered the big picture stuff. William is constantly fighting against Louis. It's fairly stalemate-ish. Mary is ruling the country when William is out of town, but for the most part, they're really leaving most of the big decisions to Parliament. But then in December 1694, Mary gets smallpox. She ends up dying on December 28th. Before she dies, she settles her various gambling debts. She makes sure that charities, specifically orphanages, that she support are left money. And she writes William this long, heartfelt letter about his relationship with Elizabeth Villiers because, yeah, Mary's petty like that. When Mary dies, William is completely devastated. She, he can't stop crying, and everyone's worried that he's going to make himself sick, and he'll also die. He completely falls apart and doesn't really start recovering until about a month later. And it's not just William who's sad. Most of the English population is devastated because Mary is super popular. Not only is she funny and charming and good-humored, she also was known for her charitable giving and the fact that she would sometimes try to intervene for people who were sentenced to death. At the time of her death, she'd been planning a hospital for sailors and soldiers at Greenwich, and it does end up getting completed after her death, but that just shows like how involved she was. There's a huge state funeral for Mary. People spend hours waiting in line outside in the cold and the snow to see her body, which is on display for two weeks. I think that really shows how beloved she was. Like I said, William does kind of fall apart after Mary's death, but he does eventually recover. And part of that recovery is maybe because William starts a close relationship with a younger Dutch noble, Arnold von Keppel. Von Keppel is basically what William needs at the time. He's funny, he's lighthearted, he's really charming, and he and William may or may not have been lovers. I personally think they probably were. However, the relationship between William and Von Keppel causes William and Bentwick to fall apart. Bentwick is super homophobic and does not approve of Von Keppel at all, and ultimately William has to choose Von Keppel over his childhood BFF, Bentwick. And it's a good thing that William recovers, because things are going to start getting pretty messy. In 1697, Holland and France finally stop fighting with the Treaty of Ryswick. Like, I really don't know when they, like, began fighting this time, but it's been going on for a while. The Treaty of Ryswick doesn't really cast one side as a winner. It leaves large-scale questions about the balance of power in Europe unanswered. I mean, that's never been a problem historically. It does, however, do some big things. Number one, under the Treaty of Ryswick, Louis XIV finally recognizes William as the King of England. That's right. From 1688 to 1697, France was still recognizing James as king. No longer. The Treaty of Ryswick also indirectly leads to the creation of the Bank of England. Basically, the war between France, Holland, and England is so expensive that Parliament has to keep raising new taxes. There's so many new taxes that they have to create a new standard of collecting, a new revenue department, etc., etc. This eventually leads to the creation of the Bank of England, which I'm not going to go into that much detail about because this isn't an economics podcast, and more importantly, I just don't care. Thanks to the Bank of England and all these new departments, by the standards of the time, England has one of the most efficient and uncorrupt tax departments in Europe. England is now a single political administrative unit. Taxes across England are going to be equal and fair regardless of region, which is huge. You're not going to see that in other European countries. So we do have some peace. But it's not going to last that long. 
it's only going to last a year because in 1698, William gets involved in the issues of Spanish succession. Even though Spain is on a bit of a decline, it still controls a ton of land. In addition to Spain itself, Spain also controls most of Central and South America, the Spanish Netherlands, aka modern-day Belgium, and Luxembourg, and a huge chunk of Italy. Charles II of Spain is dying, and he does not have an heir, so they have to figure out who the Spanish lambs will go to. The two main options are giving it to either the Austrian Habsburgs or to France. Either option would completely mess up the European balance of power. In 1699, Louis and William come up with an idea. They're like, look, we'll give most of the Spanish land to the Austrian Habsburgs, and a little bit will go to France. It'll keep the balance even. Perfect. We're geniuses. But then in 1700, Charles II of Spain is like, fuck that. I'm going to make a new will. This new will is going to keep the empire intact, and it will give the empire first to my French grandson, and then to my Austrian grandson. Who cares about balance of power? Louis XIV agrees to the new will, because hey, it helps him, it keeps him from being surrounded by Habsburgs, which is really Louis' big nightmare. William and the rest of England isn't thrilled about this situation, but they just got out of a really long war. They're not going to fight again. But they have to fight again. And the reason for the new round of fighting is James II, because everything is James II's fault. James II dies. He does, in fairness, forgive William and Mary on his deathbed. But then his wife, Mary of Modena, asks Louis XIV to recognize her son, James Edward, as the King of England. Louis XIV does this, even though the Treaty of Ryswick, which he signed, explicitly says that France must recognize William as the King of England. By recognizing James Edward as King James III of England, Louis really pisses off England, and suddenly Parliament is like, yeah, we need a war. So now we have the War of Spanish Succession. William needs a good general to fight this war. He looks around. He's like, fine. He was technically briefly a Jacobite, but John Churchill is the best damn general we've got. So he brings Churchill back into the political fold, and as a result, also improves his relationship with his sister-in-law, Anne. I'm not really going to talk that much about the War of Spanish Succession, because one, it's long. This podcast episode is getting long enough as is, and two, most of it does happen in Anne's reign, so I will cover that in the Anne study guide. While the War of Spanish Succession is breaking out, William also gets to deal with some fun inheritance issues. His heir is his sister-in-law, Anne, Mary's little sister. But then in 1700, Anne's only son dies. So who does the throne go to after Anne? Theoretically, it should go to her half-brother, James Edward, but he's a Catholic, and no one's really sure what to do about that. Parliament ends up stepping in and passes the Act of Settlement of 1701. The Act of Settlement says that only Protestants are allowed to rule England. This means that after Anne, the throne will completely bypass any children of James II and will go to the House of Hanover, who are descended from the youngest daughter of Elizabeth Stuart, who was James I's daughter. The House of Hanover is like the youngest branch of the Stuart family, but they're also literally the only Protestant relatives left. That's how we're eventually going to get George I of England, and I will cover all of this in much more depth in the Anne study guide. It's a good thing that the Act of Settlement happens when it does, because in February 1702, while William is out horseback riding, his horse trips over a molehill and throws him. He breaks his collarbone, and it never quite heals properly. William ends up getting a fever, and he dies on March 8, 1702. England, in contrast to Mary's death, is pretty meh about William's passing, except for the Jacobites, who are totally thrilled and set up a series of toasts to the mole, aka the little gentleman in velvet. With William's death, the throne passes to Anne. 
I want to end this podcast with the question, why aren't William and Mary more famous? Why isn't their reign more well-known? I think it's a few factors. First of all, their reign isn't that long. Mary's only queen for five years, and William's only king from 1689 to 1702. Thirteen years isn't a huge chunk of time. The second, more important reason, I think, is because they're competent but boring. We don't see any big dramas or scandals. It's a lot of small-scale changes over large, sweeping things. Yes, England undergoes a complete shift from an absolute monarchy to the constitutional monarchy that we recognize it to be today. I would really argue that it is William and Mary's reign that marks the start of the modern English period, but because they're not as fun as Charles II or as wildly incompetent as James II, they are sadly pushed aside. All that being said, next time study guide will be about Anne. I'm excited to do that. I will be, of course, dropping many references about the greatest movie of all time, The Favorite. Um, before I do my usual conclusion, I just want to give a little shout out to the History Miners podcast. Not only are they so incredibly great as podcasters and really enlightening, they're also fantastic human beings. I really enjoy interacting with them on social media and looking at their truly dank memes. As always, the podcast has social media. For questions, comments, and concerns, you can reach me on email at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. You can also talk to me on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod. Check out the Insta for some really dank memes. Right now it's a lot of Spongebob memes because that's who I am. Do what you gotta do. The Instagram is sad girl study and i do have a patreon patrons who donate five dollars or more a month get access to bi-monthly tangent casts where i talk about people or things that just didn't quite make it in to full-on study guides the last one was about spy and early novelist afrobin and it was super fun the patreon is patreon.com slash Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to suggest it to a friend or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcasting platform you use. And please read and review this podcast so I can learn what I'm doing well and how I can improve. Or else, I'll be sad. Thank you.